For the week of June 6, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we talk with Chris Davis. He is Governor Jay Inslee's advisor on carbon markets, all about the rapidly expanding U.S. Climate Alliance, started in part by our governor. And then we are very excited to welcome the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, Tina Podladowski. We will also have our dose of good news, followed by our weekly call to action. My first guest is Chris Davis. He is the governor's advisor on carbon markets for Governor Jay Inslee, and he joins us now to talk about the U.S. Climate Alliance, in which three states, New York, California, and Washington, have joined together to remain as signatories to the Paris Climate Accords. Chris Davis, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So let's start by talking about the big news. Uh, On June 5th, it was announced that 10 more signatories have come on board with the alliance. Who are they? Great. Uh, New states include uh, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, Vermont, uh, and Virginia, I believe, have all joined. And there are continued conversations with a few others. Um, And uh, so, yeah, we're very excited to have uh, quick additions to the list. Absolutely. Uh, So tell us very quickly what the U.S. Climate Alliance is and what it stipulates. The alliance is a collection of states who together have each committed to um, implementation of the emissions reductions that are called for in the Paris Agreement. Uh, So that would be emissions uh, reductions of 25, 26, 28 percent based on 2005 levels by 2025. That's what the U.S. committed to in its contribution to the Paris climate. So what these states are saying is in the absence of the U.S. going forward, Uh, We're going to step up and do our fair share. Uh, That's where we're starting. Uh, In addition, most states are giving serious consideration to continuing with uh, commitments under the Clean Power Plan, which was President Obama's game plan for reducing emissions from the power sector, and uh, in which states were also given sort of state-by-state obligations. And so most of the members of the alliance are considering committing to that as well. Yeah. I mean, the coalition itself packs a pretty big economic wallop. Uh, Together right now, uh, the alliance make up the third largest economy on the planet. Is the hope that no matter what happens ultimately with the Paris Accords at the federal level, that the economic weight of these states will shape nationwide standards regardless as, say, what happened with California and auto emissions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I mean, there's a number of, of points in the thinking here. On the one hand, uh, it would certainly be powerful if together, you know, the joint effect of these states acting to facilitate greater investments in clean energy and attract that kind of investment creates an economic force that, that draws more of that to market. Um, there's also just an important necessity of, of providing leadership and communicating to the world that much of the United States remains committed and focused, and as was the case uh, prior to the Trump administration's decision, um, a lot of the work was going to happen at the states and the city level, and we're going to continue forward with that. I know a number of corporations, uh, including some based uh, here in Washington, have also vowed to continue to adhere to the accords. Uh, Has the governor's office coordinated with any of these corporations? We haven't coordinated directly with any corporations on this agreement. We work regularly with many of the uh, big players in Washington state on renewable energy issues uh, and work closely on helping Uh, those firms to facilitating them purchasing clean energy or participating in clean energy markets, but uh, haven't done anything with them directly on this project. 
I'm also curious to know, because I know that the state of Washington does a great deal of direct economic trade with, you know, a lot of other, well, that's the vast majority of countries that are signed on to the the Paris Climate Accords on the planet. Uh, Has there been any official response that you know of from other signatory nations uh, to the alliance? Uh, We have received a lot of positive feedback uh, from other signatories to the Paris Accord. Uh, We've had outreach from Canada. We've had outreach from Chile. Uh, The governor has representatives in New York this week participating in a U.N. conference uh, on climate and on oceans. And we have representatives of his office as well as the governor's office in California participating there and interacting both with leaders from the subnational community as well as uh, states and signatories. So uh, there has been uh, a great deal of of positive response and and, uh, expressions of support from signatories around the world. So finally, uh, I'm curious to know what the governor and the governor's office anticipates in terms of pushback from the federal government and the White House. Uh, EPA head Scott Pruitt has said that he is an advocate of states' rights, but that may not carry over here. So what does the state anticipate? We haven't had much direct feedback from the federal government yet as of this point. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, there's obviously a great deal of issue, a number of issues here around what authorities the state have, has to act under, uh, both when it comes to sort of managing uh, the sectors that generate emissions, but also participating in, in national agreements. We obviously are not parties uh, to the U.N. Um, treaty per se, um, so we'll be in conversations about sort of, you know, how we can communicate the work we're doing in an appropriate setting. Uh, but at this point, we have not had interactions with the federal government. I couldn't tell you exactly where, um, you know, where to expect that that might come from in the short term. Well, Chris Davis, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the program. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Time now for this week's call to action. But first, our weekly dose of good news. And let's just kick it off by reiterating what we just spoke with Chris Davis about. The U.S. Climate Alliance, started in part by our governor, Jay Inslee, is growing by leaps and bounds and may mostly nullify Trump's move to take the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accords. I should also bring up a point about that, and it's one that's been widely reported, but it bears repeating. The process of withdrawing the U.S. from the Accords will take precisely four years, and due to a quirk of good fortune, the date for that withdrawal is November 4th, 2020, which is, you guessed it, exactly one day after the next presidential election. So, coming to a ballot box near you, or we vote by mail here in the state, but you get the idea. Speaking of climate issues, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg pledged up to $15 million to support the U.N. agency that helps countries implement the Paris Climate Accords. In an interview, Bloomberg said, quote, Americans will honor and fulfill the Paris Agreement by leading from the bottom up, and there isn't anything Washington can do to stop us. That's a spirit, Mike. And finally, down California way, on Thursday, the California State Senate voted to pass Senate Bill 562, moving one step closer to creating a single-payer health care system in California. It is aimed at creating the Healthy California program, which would provide universal health care coverage throughout the state. And now for this week's call to action, and this one comes to us from Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. So, you guys remember the financial collapse of 2008? That was fun. Right. Uh, The majority of economists believe that lack of government regulation played at least some part in allowing things to melt down the way they did, which is something the Dodd-Frank legislation attempted to remedy. 
Now there is a bill going through the House, H.R. 10, the so-called Financial Choice Act of 2017, which aims to substantially roll back a lot of the protections that Dodd-Frank put into place. Let's call our reps and tell them that this is the Wrong Choice Act and to vote no. The vote is happening on June 7th, so time is of the essence here. Call your rep and weigh in on the Wrong Choice Act. And that is this week's Call to Action. Tina Podlodowski is the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, and we are extremely pleased to have her on the show. Tina Podlodowski, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, so I would like to start by talking a little bit about your personal story because it is compelling. Uh, Tell us about your background. Your election to party chair brings a number of firsts, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I'm actually uh, the first female party chair in 25 years uh, of the Washington State Democratic Party, but I'm also the first lesbian, the first member of the LGBT community, the first uh, child of immigrants. Um, My parents were refugees from Poland in World War II, and then also the first kid to grow up in a union family. So my roots run very strong in terms of uh, working with unions, uh, being a part of immigrant communities, as well as Democratic politics. And it's really exciting to have somebody who's got that sort of background, as well as my professional background, having been an executive at Microsoft, as well as a Seattle City Council member, run some very large nonprofit organizations, including Lifelong AIDS Alliance and Big Brothers Big Sisters, and then uh, to most recently have run statewide, not one, but run statewide in Washington State for the Secretary of State seat. And I really credit that race with getting me more engaged in what a state party chair could do and wanting to take on this responsibility. And your election to state chair has gotten a lot of people very excited. Uh, Speaking of excitement, you gave a remarkable presentation at a democracy fair that I attended a few weeks back, which got people really pumped up. Uh, So I want to go into the specifics of your plans to both turn the state house blue and to win congressional races. But I would like to frame our discussion by first talking about the stakes. What is at stake specifically for Washington state right now? Well, I think it's really important for anyone who's involved in progressive politics to recognize that over the last 10 years, we've definitely had a decline and certainly a decline in the Democratic Party in terms of the work that we've done to win elections. You know, we've gone from a 15-seat majority to a one-seat minority in the state Senate. So Democrats no longer hold the state Senate in Washington state. But in the state house, we've also declined. We've gone from a 28-seat majority to a two-seat majority in the state house. So the work that we do is razor thin. And I think for many folks who want to see Democrats uh, be bold, be, uh, work on progressive politics, it's an issue. Um, Republicans control most of our county councils as well in the state of Washington, 26 of them, compared to six counties where Democrats control the county counties, the county councils, and then seven that are either nonpartisan or split. So we've got a big challenge here in Washington state. As a state, we also have uh, the most special elections in 2017 than any other state in the country. Those are elections that are off cycle um, and that are happening in 2017 because various elected officials have moved up or out. And we have eight special elections happening. One, the only race in the country in legislative district 45 that could flip 
a chamber, and that's the race for state Senate between Monka Dingra, the Democratic candidate, and Jin Young England, the Republican candidate. And the fight for that one particular seat actually has national implications because, as you have said at your presentation, the GOP controls 33 legislatures and has 32 governorships. You raise the rather frightening point uh, that Republicans are only four states away from being able to convene a constitutional Congress. First, tell us what can happen at a constitutional Congress and tell us what can happen at one controlled by the GOP. Potentially. Sure. Maybe I can take folks back to um, the 70s and the era of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which was an amendment to the Constitution. It was passed through the Congress, which is controlled by Democrats, and then uh, passed through by a Democratic president. But in order to make a change to our Constitution, it needs to be ratified by a majority of states. In this case, it's 36 states. So what happens when you have a Republican president like Trump, as well as a Republican House and a Republican Senate at the federal level is that they could pass amendments to the Constitution. And if Republicans hit the magic number of 36, meaning state houses that were controlled by uh, Republicans as well as uh, gubernatorial seats, they would have the power to change our Constitution and change it forever. And to me, that's a frightening thought, given that the Constitution is the bedrock component of how we are working through issues in the courts and probably in some cases the thing that is the only thing that's saving us from the most heinous aspects of what the Trump administration wants to do to everyone here in this country. And so those are the stakes. And so... Yes. And they're very, very high. They are. And so let's start by talking about your plan to win back the state Senate. As you mentioned, Manka Dingra, whom we recently spoke with here on the show, is running in the 45th district. Um, What are state Democrats strategically doing to win this race? Sure. And let's talk about this race uh, in the context of what it really represents. It is the number one legislative district race in the country in this cycle. It is fundamentally a crazy race. Um, We are going to spend, combined between the Republicans and Democrats, somewhere around $8 million in this race. That is that's crazy. for a state Senate race. That's that's just unprecedented. Right. That is unprecedented. It is absolutely crazy. And personally, I'm not quite sure that eight million dollars is um, going to get spent in ways that will actually turn out voters. So that's where we're doing things differently as a Democratic Party. We are doing incredibly strategic canvases in the 45th district, meaning we're talking to voters, and we're not just doing the same old same old thing that happens, which is talking to either high propensity Democratic voters or medium propensity voters, people who generally are going to uh, vote and we want to turn them out, although we will talk to those folks. But we're going to spend a lot of time with folks who don't normally vote in elections or people who call themselves independents, who either are uh, unhappy with either the Democratic or the Republican Party or have never felt themselves a part of a party structure to begin with, to to really understand how our values intersect. Because for me, it's not about whether you have a D behind your name. It's whether or not you connect with values about the person that's running for a particular office. And in fact, that we have a party that connects with the majority of values that work for working Washingtonians on a variety of issues, whether it's economic, health care, education, or so much more. So those canvases are incredibly important and doing organizing full-time, 365 days of the year to make a difference to make that happen. That's going to be the key is people, not money for TV commercials. 
I'm going to want to return to what you just said about democratic values in a moment. But first, I'm curious to get your takes on special elections generally. Uh, There have been, as we know, statewide uh, special elections in Kansas. Of course, there's one in Georgia's sixth. There was one in Montana. Uh, These are absolutely being seen as a referendum on Trump. Uh, There has been a strong showing from Democrats in GOP strongholds. But as we know, James Thompson lost in uh, Kansas. Rob Quist lost his bid in Montana. This was a day after his opponent body slammed a reporter and broke his glasses. Um, right. How do you interpret these the, the results of these special elections? I think that there uh, is a bit of a referendum on Trump, but I also think that Democrats have to do better. That's how I interpret it. I mean, take a look at what happened uh, in Montana in 2016 in the very same race. In 2016, it was Ryan Zinke, the incumbent, against Denise Juno, the Democratic candidate in, in that state. Um, That race had a 74% turnout in 2016. And if you look at the absolute vote total for Denise Juneau, it was around 220,000 votes. Um, If we were able to turn out those same voters who voted for Denise Juneau in 2016 for Rob Quist in 2017, that absolute number, Rob Quist would have won by about Mm. 20,000 votes. But the reality is turnout was only 54% in that special election. So what it says to me is there's there's a couple of things at play. Number one is really understanding voters and being able to communicate with voters in ways that engage with their values. So turning out those same voters again and again and again I think is really, really important. But to be able to do that, you need to understand what those voters find uh, important and engage with them, not just once every two years in an election cycle, but all the time to make that happen. That's number one. Number two is also looking at voter registration as another component of this. Here in Washington state, we have about 4.2 million people who are registered to vote, but we have another 1.6 million people who are eligible to be registered to vote who are not registered. And when you look at who those folks are, it's women, it's young people, it's people of color, uh, it's folks who make less than $50,000 a year. Those are folks whose voices we need to hear and we need to turn them out and get them registered. So for me, Montana said, We did okay, but we didn't do good enough, and Democrats have to do more than okay, and we have to do actually more than just good enough. We have to be winning these races because people's lives are depending upon it. Now, there's going to be a little bit of overlap here, but I do want to shift and talk about the way in which you see winning congressional races here in the state in 2018, because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, There are two races that the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, has targeted in our state as being winnable for the Democrats. One is uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler's seat in the third, and the other is a name that should be familiar to my listeners, Dave Reichert in the eighth. Uh, So uh, tell us what your strategy is with each of these races. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Herrera Butler's seat first. Sure. In in both of these races, it's a matter of breaking down the districts as a whole. So looking at the third congressional district, you have um, multiple areas that are parts of the 19th legislative district, the 20th, the 17th, the 18th, the 14th district. Those are places that we need to have conversations with those voters, and we need to look at key performance indicators in those districts. So it really is a matter of, uh, in some places, 
for example, in Vancouver, Washington, where we might be able to turn out more of the blue and more Democratic voters. But in other places, it's actually losing less. So take Lewis County as a great example in Washington state. If the number that Democrats have always done in Lewis County is about 35 percent, maybe closer to 40 percent, how do we tick the box up to 42, 43, 44 percent or really understand how to lose less? That's a big component of our ability to then meld those numbers where we're getting more voters with the strong urban presence of progressive Democrats and finally win those races. So just to be clear, those are the sorts of things that you're talking about when you talk about key performance indicators. Yes. So for us, it's a matter of um, how do we look at all the voters in a particular congressional district broken down by legislative district and then ultimately broken down by precinct because each of those uh, have precinct components and a precinct is broken down to a block of about 300 voters. So throughout the state, we have 7,229 precincts and our goal is to make sure that Democrats have 7,229 precinct committee officers or really precinct community organizations organizers that are doing the works in their neighborhood, talking to a variety of folks, again, every few weeks, not just at election time, to understand what those voters need and what they want, to make sure people are registered to vote, and to make sure people get excited about the opportunities that, that exist when you really have progressive folks elected to all of these offices around the state. And I figure that a lot of what these PCOs are doing is filtering back up to you in terms of feedback, yes? Exactly. We're in the midst of building uh, a really terrific app for our precinct committee officers that have the demographics of their particular district, the voting patterns of their particular district, and then every couple of weeks the opportunities to go talk to, you know, 10 or 15 folks in their in their districts with critical questions, say healthcare. Maybe ask a few questions about healthcare, send that data and information back to us, and then we can take a look at how different issues are playing throughout the entire state. Imagine the power of 7,229 precinct committee officers asking 10 people every two weeks their um, opinion about something. That's over 72,000 people in the state of Washington. That outplays any poll anybody could ever pay for and helps to do two things, you know, really get the pulse of what's happening with voters and start to take the money out of politics around things like polling and uh, polling that drives things like big TV ad campaigns that I'm just not convinced do a darn thing to get voters out and probably annoy folks more than anything else. (laughs) Well, I could speak to that, at least in terms of my own experience. Um, I'm curious to get your take on the 8th District, which is, uh, just uh, full disclosure, this is where I live, and our uh, <laughs> our congressman is Dave Reichert. Now, the 8th is a strange beast in that it's the first time a congressional district has ever spanned both sides of the Cascades, post-redistricting, of course, which presents a number of unique challenges. How do you view this race? Well, I think it's a district where people forget um, that there is a lot of rural territory in this district, going all the way up into um, Chelan County, as well as parts of Kittitas. Well, it was designed and, that way, I think, wasn't it, in order to make Riker, to, exactly. in order for him to have a safe seat? Yeah. Exactly. And I don't think it's as safe anymore. I think the critical race in 2017 that will tell us a lot about exactly the way to beat Dave Reichert is in the 31st district. That is a bit of South King County as well as Pierce County, and it's wholly contained in Congressional District 8. Uh, There's a special election there for both seats, for two seats, for a state representative seat as well as a state senate seat. And we are doing a lot of work in that particular district around talking to rural voters 
in the 31st, frankly, the biggest city is uh, wholly contained in the 31st is Enumclaw. And what you're seeing is a lot of folks having different opinions based upon what they're seeing about Donald Trump. And then how is that tied to Dave Reichert and what he is or isn't doing for his constituents in the 8th District? I think it's really telling that doesn't matter if it's Jamie Herrera-Butler, Dave Reichert, Kathy McMorris-Rogers over in the 5th District, Spokane area. None of them are coming out to meet with their constituents. None of them are actually um, doing work to, to talk to their constituents in person. So they are in hiding. They are hiding from the Trump agenda despite voting for it. And I think we're going to have a tremendous opportunity, although it's going to take a lot of work, to canvas and identify voters in the 8th District, again, the, along the way that, that I was talking about with our our summer of Canvas to be able to talk to those voters, understand their issues, and make sure that they know that Dave Reichert is not supporting and voting for their issues. Some candidates are beginning to declare and emerge. Uh, how are you vetting potential candidates? Do you interview them personally? You know, we're at, you're actually asking at a good time because we're meeting with um, a variety of different organizations, including the DCCC next week, and then also uh, talking to about eight of the current candidates uh, to do some vetting of those candidates and to understand the opportunity and how they fit the district as well. I think um, – it's not just a matter of self-identifying. It's also folks who can fit a district particularly well and who are willing to do the work in a congressional race. It is an all-encompassing uh, marathon that runs as a sprint. So it's something that you want to have someone who really is engaged and wanting to make that happen and doing the work to talk to folks because I think that that's the difference. If you're there meeting with constituents, talking to actual people, doing the work around that, we're going to be able to, to take Dave Reichert out in the 8th District. Now, let's talk about Kathy McMorris-Rogers in the 5th. Uh, <laughs> and I will prime the pump here by saying that a lot of people would love to see her gone just for her outspoken vote on Trump care alone, not to mention the fact that she just had a $5,000 a plate dinner uh, recently in Bellevue. Uh, tell us what your plan is for the 5th District. You know, it's a similar sort of thing. There are special elections in the 7th district, uh, the 7th legislative district, which comprises a large part of Congressional District 5. And we've got some great candidates who are running there. And it's the same thing, deep canvassing, talking to folks, making sure that we're ticking up. The last time a Democrat ran in legislative District 7, they got about 30 percent of the vote. Well, you know what? We need to just move it up to 39 percent of the vote and continue to hold our great blue center that's continuing to grow in Spokane right. to be able to take out Kathy McMorris-Rogers. So she should run scared. I know there's going to be a lot of money in her race. She is uh, the sole woman in leadership uh, for the Republicans. She is the one they trot out whenever they need a woman to talk about something. But she's also been somebody who has been a cheerleader for Trump care and a cheerleader for the policies of Donald Trump. So I think that she we're going to give her a great and tough race. And uh, yes, I think it's been disappointing. Again, Kathy's not been there to talk to her constituents. And the irony is this past uh, couple of days ago when she came to Bellevue for, Bellevue for a $5,000 a plate fundraising dinner, she put up a sign in her office saying, uh, sorry, we're not in today because we are out meeting with constituents. I don't think she has any constituents in Bellevue, actually. I don't actually. think she does either. Yeah. No. <laughs> so that, that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of trickery is not going to play very well with people who um, – 
actually going to vote in that particular race. And I believe that Kathy is far more vulnerable than people are giving credit for, that dollars are not going to save Kathy McMorris-Rogers. People are angry, and they want to get engaged, uh, and they want to do the work. And frankly, they want uh, to be able to make sure that there are people there who represent their values and interests. Again, not just because they have a D behind their name or an R behind their name, but how are they actually working for the working people and families of the state of Washington? So speaking of people and families, uh, I do want to talk about party identity. Uh, For generations, the Democrats were the party of labor. Uh, As you said, you come from a labor family. Why do you think the party has largely lost labor, critically, it seems, in 2016? And how how did Democrats get the labor vote back? Well, you know, I think... um I think the Democratic Party has had um, a couple of decades of decline and thinking about how to work within states and how state parties matter. If you look at the DNC under um, – I'm blanking at his name all of a sudden. Thank you very much. Under (laughs) Howard Dean. Howard had a 50-state strategy that got down to the local level. So it wasn't just about running in a presidential race. It was about how do you build a party throughout an entire state and understand and know that party. And I think Democrats lost that. Here in Washington state, we've certainly seen that particular decline in uh, how we've lost seats in the legislature. And we need to be able to change that. We need to be able to do that work in a completely different way in Washington state. So I think growing the party itself and growing uh, based on values and talking about values is is how we come back and how we win those sorts of things and how we convince people that we really are here and working with labor. You know, I always think about my dad. My dad was a machinist. Uh, He was a shop steward. He was a guy who was an immigrant. I can see him sitting at the bar of the Polish American Club right now. And with what's happened in terms of working families across this country, Democrats, I don't think, have done a, a good enough job with economic issues, particularly for working class families. So, I could see my dad sitting there with a bunch of his friends thinking, you know what, hasn't changed for me in the last few years. Maybe I'll give this Trump guy a, a, a try and maybe I'll vote for him. And you know what, they're starting to see the consequences of that vote. But yeah. it's not enough to be against Trump. We have to stand for something as a Democratic Party. We have to show that we're there for working families. We have to show that we're there to give health care for all and universal health care. We have to show that, you know what, we can get your kid into college or into an apprenticeship program, and they're not going to be saddled with debt, and there's going to be a job waiting at the other end of it. That's what the Democratic Party has to prove to voters, and um, that's what I'm about here in Washington State is making sure we can do that. I want to touch on a subject that's a little touchy, and that is the ideological divide that came up during the 2016 election. And you saw a lot of these things sort of play out in real time between the camps. It divided up between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I don't want to dwell on this too much because I think it's probably counterproductive, but it's still going on within the party to a large extent. And I'm I'm curious to know how you see healing that divide. Well, first, we have to acknowledge that the divide exists, right? I think for so many Sanders supporters, what they want to hear is somebody say say they're sorry for how things went down at the convention, for how things went down with the entire um, nomination process. And I, I am more than willing to deliver that apology because people had a difficult time with how the process ran. And it was something that we never should ever do again as a party. I'm committed to that here in Washington state. I can't make that happen nationally, but certainly in Washington state, we want to have the most transparent process 
possible, and everyone should know the rules going into it. So uh, that's incredibly important. But I think more than that is let's take a moment to step back and look at our shared values and how do we get people who uh, embody those values elected in Washington state. Certainly, going after each other is not going to have that happen. Republicans will win if that's the case. People that we don't want will win if that's the case. So let's go to work. Let's see where our values work together. Let's get to know each other as people, not just behind the screens of our computers. And then let's see how we can make this happen and work. I'm convinced that as people get to know each other and spend the time and do that work, and if they're honest about saying 2016 was a train wreck, let's put that behind us, let's never do this again, and that we act differently that we're going to get people engaged and moving forward. And again, if people don't want to put a D behind their name, I I don't really care as Washington State Democratic Party chair. I want them to be working for these candidates and these causes that are going to make a difference and ultimately win back our states and win back uh, our federal government and win back the, the presidency as well. But let's make sure that we're winning our states first. Absolutely. You have talked about sort of a long view of the Democratic Party here in the state, not just at 2018, but beyond. You talk about eight, even 16 years. How do you see the party evolving? I think that the party needs to look at what's happened throughout the state and that it's quite red, so that the party itself needs to do a lot of work if we're going to change that and flip it to blue and make it be a much more democratic state. That means investing in candidate recruitment. That means investing in everything from school board races all the way up to the federal races with candidate recruitment, with candidate training, with working with different candidates and with getting people to run again if they lose or with getting folks to get the sorts of help and support that they need when they're in these local offices to move up to the next level. That is a multi-year cycle to make that happen. And frankly, the Democratic Party had not been doing that in Washington state. So to me, it's about people. It's about investing in people, getting more people engaged, getting people excited about politics, getting people excited about voting, getting people excited about what happens when you have the right people in those seats, whether it's a city council, a school board, a county council, a state legislature. And I know that we can do that, and we're, it's go- but it's going to take time to make that happen. So let's craft a journey for ourselves that is not about just one election cycle, but a, a 10-year journey, a 20-year journey that makes fundamental change in our state in in our country. So you talked about getting people excited about the process and and getting excited about politics in general. But uh, something that you have launched is called the Summer of Canvas. And you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, Tell us uh, specifically what that is. So the Summer of Canvas is a massive, massive volunteer-led canvas all throughout the state, where we're looking to identify 60,000 swing voters in the state of Washington, people in these districts that it just takes a few points to tick up, to turn them from red to blue, and then places where we can lose less and have a dramatic impact as well. So Summer of Canvas is an opportunity for folks to be trained as Canvas leaders, to talk to folks, whether it's door knocking or via phone or via email and text opportunities, to have real conversations with voters because we're not going to be pushing candidates. We're actually going to be listening to people. 
and really understanding what their issues are and what they want to see as change. Um, we've got uh, three months to pull this off, and it's a, it's a great opportunity for folks to learn these sorts of techniques and these opportunities for partnering with people like um, Swing Left, as well as Knock Every Door, uh, as Sister District, these great national organizations to make this happen. And if folks are interested, the easiest way for them to join really is to send a text. They could send a text to uh, the number is 444-999, pretty easy, 444-999, and the word Canvas, which has two S's at the end because it's uh, Canvas like summer of Canvas, not Canvas like a Canvas bag. Right. And um, just jo- join us that way. We'll sign you up to make that happen too. Um, to the same number, 444-999, you can also – uh, text the word new blue, all one word, new, N-E-W, blue, all one word. And we have a collaborative online plan going on throughout the state of Washington where you can weigh in and actually say what you want Democrats in the state of Washington to do. It's sort of an online canvas in that way, and it's a really, really interesting document. We've had 500 people on at a time really talking about what they want to see as changes in the Democratic Party. So both of those are places where people can engage, and we'd love to have them do that. And we will make Make sure to put that information on the website and the SoundCloud page. Um, Terrific. In your pre- and speaking of social media and all things tech, uh, one of the things that you talked about that I thought was particularly intriguing was using social media the way that Trump's people did. Tell us about that. Sure. You know, what what Donald Trump did is that he didn't use political people for social media. He used consumer marketing people for his social media plan. So basically what he was doing was taking Facebook data, Facebook, the company that knows everything about us all day, all the time, and matching that with voter data. So he could get a really good uh, profile, voter profile of who voters were. And at his peak, he was iterating somewhere between 75 and 175,000 different messages on social media on a daily basis. So, for example, say you are a more progressive voter. You might have gotten messages on your social media page that said why you shouldn't vote or why your candidate was terrible or why, you know, all of those sorts of things. At the same end... Uh, If you were a Trump voter, you were getting messages about why it was so critical for you to vote, and here were the things that you were fighting against by voting as a Trump voter. And they were very, very, very good at segmenting out all of these different voters. Well, we're going to do the same thing in the Democratic Party, except we're going to ask your permission. We're not just going to take your data. Nice. But to be able to put – yeah, exactly, because it's your data, and we don't want to steal it. Um, So what we want to be able to do then is say, we'd love to put together a custom organizing plan for you. So can we match? your Facebook data, Gmail contacts against the voter registration database, as well as uh, our vote builder files. And what we can then say is, here's your personalized plan. Here are your 12 friends who actually aren't registered to vote. Here are your 25 friends who might live in the 45th district, and we need them to vote in the election to support Manka Dingra. And here are your 50 friends who might live in Congressional District 8, and we need them to turn out to vote against Dave Reichert and, and win that particular race, and give you tools to talk to folks via email and text to be able to make that happen. And that's a, de- a tool we're going to deploy in a couple of districts uh, for turn out the vote for summer of canvas and beyond, and then hopefully have that tool ready to go and turning it on in 2018 when the congressional races are up, when Senator Maria Cantwell is up, and then when all of those House seats in the state of Washington in the state house are up for election so we can really go after and target some folks. 
You mentioned the role of grassroots groups like Swing Left, and because this is a show that is dedicated to the indivisible movement, I would be remiss if I did not ask you how you see the role of groups like Indivisible in helping the Democrats. Indivisible is absolutely positively key. I mean, the indivisible groups are folks that uh, really want to make a difference and really have a particular point of view around politics. Again, I want to partner with indivisible groups, and I want folks to be excited about candidates and the work that the Democratic Party is doing. So, again, it's moving from not just resisting, but to go on offense. That's a big part of Summer of Canvas, is to be able to go on offense, identify these voters, turn them out, and win these races so we can take on Donald Trump and all of his minions in both Congress as well as state houses throughout the entire country. We have an opportunity for historic change. You know, the pyramid swing, or the pendulum rather, swings at various times. President Obama was a more progressive president than we've seen in a long time. And if you look at different uh, aspects of history, after the Civil War, where there was a a time of progress, uh, we swung back into Jim Crow South, essentially, and all of these laws that disenfranchised African Americans in our country. After the Civil Rights Movement, the same thing happened with Nixon and the Southern strategy, where you had things that disenfranchised voters and went after our civil rights laws. Well, we're seeing that swing back. And you know what? We've got to make that change, and we've got to make a difference happen. Groups like Indivisible are critical to that and critical partners to the Democratic Party. Whether you ever want to call yourself a Democrat or not, it's a matter of finding the right people in place and working with folks to get good candidates elected, good progressive candidates who are going to make change for all of us in this country. You strike me as a naturally optimistic person. Uh, So I will ask you this. Every day brings basically a new outrage uh, from the Trump White House or from the GOP. What are the Dems doing to kind of avoid that sense of burnout, that outrage overload? What do you advise? Do you ever fall victim to it yourself? Uh, Yes, because it's kind of crazy, right? Every day it's something you cannot imagine uh, in your wildest dreams. Actually, they're able to come up with, wow, it's quite something in that way. (laughs) So So I think for me the burnout is to not just outrage and rage against every crazy thing that Trump and his minions are doing, but to do the work, again, like Summer of Canvas. What's not going to happen, what's not going to make a change is if we get ourselves worked up and just, you know, keep Facebooking and tweeting about all of these issues. What's going to matter is if we identify voters and vote these guys and gals who clearly, clearly are uh, addicted to supporting the 1% and making sure that they get their billions of dollars of tax breaks, but not helping other families and not helping real people throughout the country. So we've got to identify those voters that will make the difference. So I say get to work. Work on the things that you know are going to matter. It's kind of like if you're on a fitness craze, right? And you can rail against the fact that you're 10 pounds overweight and you want to do something else or rail against the fact that, you know, you want to be able to run a 5K race. But if you're not, you know what, saying no to dessert or if you're not taking those steps every day to get yourself in shape to run, you're you're not going to achieve those goals in any way, shape, or form. Trump is distracting. Let's not get distracted. Let's do the work to identify those voters. Let's canvas. Let's make sure that we're holding our elected officials accountable. Let's making sure that everyone we know is registered to vote, and let's turn them out to vote. Those are the things that will make a difference. What a perfect place to leave it. Tina Podlodowski, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here and just want to say thanks to everyone who's part of the Indivisible Movement. You're doing amazing things, and you're going to change our country. So thank you. And that will do it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. As always, you guys, please keep the thoughts and feedback coming. I love hearing from you. Please email me at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Also, do head over and check out our Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Washington State Indivisible Podcast on Facebook. We've got a lot of great stuff coming, and I would love to let you all know about it. So check it out. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. Thank you again to Chris Davis. Thanks to Tina Podlodowski. And special thanks to Vincent Lowe and Alex Bond for their help in setting things up this week. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.